Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. She is the inenterable Katie Natopoulos. <laughs> <laughs> it's Monday, and you are watching AM to DM, friends. Um, <sighs> let's get into this. Here yeah, is a tweet from Anthony. We love it. Do you ever see the first sentence of a text message and think, wow, I don't have time for this right now? All the time. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. yeah, I, listen, it's intense out here. We know this, like America, the news. Mm -hmm. So I just feel that my tolerance for like personal drama is like, I'm like, I can't do this with you because I'm doing this with America right now. Yeah. What about you? Well, I feel like the key with that is the first sentence of a text uh -huh. message. Like if you have a text message that's more than one sentence, it's bad. Yeah. Like you don't want to read the rest. Because definitely that means they've like practiced yeah. and really thought intensely about what they're yeah. bringing to Like them. they wrote it up in the notes app and copied and pasted it over. <laughs> like if someone was going to send you a fun text message. Right. It wouldn't have multiple sentences. Mm -hmm. It would be it would be all you know yeah. broken up. And it's also like yeah to that point like someone is like you're just getting the text you're minding your business mm -hmm. and boom so it's 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 an ambush. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly they've like talked with other friends they've like you said the notes have, they're prepared and you're like girl I'm just trying to get some coffee like what are we you know. Yeah. Mm. Same yeah, thing I see you know I have open DMs. Uh huh. I love my open DMs it's really cool but it's the same I can kind of tell mm -hmm. what kind of conversation we're gonna have based on the very beginning and I just don't reply. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the text message equivalent of like, do you have a second to talk? <laughs> right? Uh, no. No. No seconds. No yeah, seconds. Yeah. Like a Where DM from your go? boss. Hey, got a sec? Oh, you know? God. Oh, God, I just got chills. Yeah. Well, let's take it to the timeline before I trigger myself. Uh, what's something you don't have time for right now? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM because it's real out here. Uh, and to that point, moving on to more serious news out of Pittsburgh. BuzzFeed News tweeted, a husband and wife, a pair of brothers, a trusted doctor, a 97-year-old grandmother. These are the victims of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Julia Reinstein joins us now from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where she has been reporting. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Um, so you've been talking to people there in Squirrel Hill. Um, how is the community reacting? It's really hard because it's a really insular community here. A lot of people are Jewish. Um, everyone kind of knows everyone. So people pretty much either know someone here who was killed or injured or know someone who knows them really well. Wow, that has to be so hard. Um, you also spoke to Orthodox Jews in that mm -hmm. community who did not find out about the shooting for hours because they don't use electronics on Saturdays uh, when the shooting took place. So uh, what was that like? What was it like for them to find out? Oh, man, it was so hard. A lot of them pretty much knew that there had been some shooting. They didn't really know how bad it had been, and they couldn't tell their families if they were okay or not because they weren't using their phones. They weren't checking the news, really. Um, so while they knew that something had happened, they didn't know the full extent of how bad it had been um, until uh, Shabbat was over at sundown. Uh, and it was just, it was really hard to hear, but it was also so important to them to keep that tradition uh, in spite of this. Mm -hmm. um, so Trump had made some comments about there should have been an armed guard and some other things I think people thought were not necessarily that sensitive. How are people reacting to what Trump said about this? 
Uh, I saw actually this morning that a Jewish group made a letter uh, that they put out that's saying Trump is not welcome in Pittsburgh until he denounces white nationalism. Uh, you know, this is it seems like a somewhat liberal town, though there's lots of different political opinions. But um, people are upset at that. You know, there were three cops that were shot. So there's only so much that can do. I grew up with guards around my synagogue, too, and kind of knew this could happen. Um but if police are getting shot while trying to defend them, you know, maybe that's not enough. Right. And to that point, right, where people in the community there in Squirrel Hero are having to push back against um, misinformation, even from the president of the United States. Wow. Um, are there other examples of things you're hearing from people there that they're like, they want to make very clear to people uh, discussing uh, this tragedy? More than anything, they've been talking about what a community they are. This is uh, where Mr. Rogers started, um, and it really does feel like a neighborhood, um, and they just care about each other so much. Uh, they've opened their homes to each other. They're checking on each other and you know, bringing each other food and doing everything they need, um, and they're really standing together through this. They're really standing yeah, together. Yeah, my husband grew up in Squirrel Hill. His parents live oh. there, so they've been sort of, they sort of said the same thing, that like, Neighbors checking in with each other, lots of calls, lots of texts, you know, talking. Wow, wow. Well, yeah. Julia, thank you for being there and reporting. And again, BuzzFeed News has a lot of helpful articles. And um, mm -hmm. thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right. Uh, Sarah McCammon of NPR tweeted this, and I wanted to share it. Everyone's saying thoughts and prayers, but where we go to pray, it's not even safe. So how are we supposed to do that? And that's from Ellie Fleischer, 16 years old. She attended Hebrew school at Tree of Life in Pittsburgh. And whew. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Thoughts and prayers. They're supposed to be able to pray safely. Yeah. yeah. Um, here's a tweet from Miriam Elder, world editor for BuzzFeed News. Bolsonaro, the new president of Brazil, has said, I am in favor of a dictatorship, called a female lawmaker a slut, said no father is ever proud of having a gay son and has called indigenous Brazilians parasites. Parasites. Well, Ryan Broderick tweeted, Bolsonaro's win in Brazil tonight marks the end of the first Facebook elections. Here's a piece I've been working on for almost four years now. Here's how a handful of American tech companies radicalized the world. Ryan Broderick, Deputy Global News Director for BuzzFeed, joins us now from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. So uh, to start, why have you described the presidential election in Brazil as the first Facebook election? Uh, it's the, the, the end of the first wave of Facebook elections. So uh, I personally have been traveling uh, around for about three and a half, four years now. Um, but if you look back, the election of uh, Modi in India in 2014 was sort of this beginning of the idea that Facebook could really, really, really like power an election, more so than we'd ever seen before. And uh, the Brazilian election last night is sort of the last big election before the next Indian election. So in my mind, this is sort of like the end of a cycle of you know, going around the world and saying, oh my God, I can't believe the internet has undermined our democracy. Uh, we are now sort of mm -hmm. ending that first phase. Freshman year is over, basically. Freshman year is mm -hmm. over. 
Um, Ryan, you know, I remember when I started at BuzzFeed and you were just a guy a couple rows over from me in the newsroom. Um, and then here we are, you know, in the last four years, you have reported from 22 countries um, on six different continents on nationalist trolls. So first of all, I'm sorry. Uh, and more broadly, you know, looking at all of it, and we've talked to you, I mean, from all over the world about this same dance, if you point in the article. So what is the common denominator between all of these different countries and, and politics online? I mean, I think it's 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 actually quite simple because um, we've seen this before. We've seen this with Coca-Cola. We've seen this with McDonald's. We've seen this with Marlboro. Basically, uh, a handful of American tech companies have gone into countries around the world and they've basically said to them, look, your local media is expensive and it's boring and it's not very interesting and it's on paper or whatever. And we're gonna give you a new set of tools to make your own media on our platform. So it, it is very much like a McDonald's moving into a small neighborhood and replacing local businesses. But the difference between something like Facebook and McDonald's is that while McDonald's might give you obesity or heart disease you know, 20 years from now or whatever, what we're seeing with Facebook is a lot faster and it's a lot more holistic, right? So it's, it's screwing with the way people understand information and consume just culture. And I think that when you have a, a small, um, you know, amount of companies based in America, imposing um, very American ideas of social interaction on huge chunks of the global population. Yeah. Things are going to get really weird, really, really fast. <laughs> Clearly. So I kind of feel like, it, you know, if you'd asked like six years ago, what is going to be the, the force, the driving force of social media for politics? You know, we would have thought of like Barack Obama, the Arab Spring on Twitter, like these sort of progressive politics would be the, the vector that social media would uh, bring to the world. And instead, it's actually sort of been the opposite. It's been enabling these really far right um, types of groups. Um, why do you think that? Well, it's interesting you bring up the Arab Spring or something like um, Barack Obama's Hope Campaign or Occupy Wall Street. Um, a lot of the countries that are electing far-right populists had some sort of equivalent of Occupy Wall Street. In fact, Bolsonaro in Brazil is sort of riding the coattails of a very young street-level impeachment movement that happened after a big corruption scandal here in 2014. I think what, we, what we've seen is that... The um, open source, crowdsource tools like Anonymous, Occupy Wall Street, WikiLeaks, they're really, really powerful. And really bad people can figure out how to hijack those uh, and use them for their own means. So if, you know, in the, the beginning of the, of the century, the 21st century, we saw, you know, people coming together anonymously to create these huge movements, we're now seeing lightning rod populists be able to take control of them. And when you can aim the fire hose, that's when things become really, really scary. Uh, well, to that point, I mean, you mentioned that this is basically the end of the first cycle, as you pointed, like this kind of four-year cycle. What comes next? I mean, as you say, like, it happens quickly and intensely. So where do we go from here? Well, the thing that keeps me up at night um, is that if you think about these as algorithmic ele elections, you know, elections where proprietary algorithms are uh, changing the way we, we think about things, the next 
wave or maybe the wave after this would be AI elections, which uh, I'm becoming a little worried about because it's like, as we get more used to using chatbots or things like Siri or home assistants like Alexa or Google Home, we're really going to start to lose a grip on how people consume information. We already don't know much about how you or I see the world anymore, right? Like the, the idea of a, a mainstream media is breaking apart. But when you have some, you know, essentially a robot in your home who helps you think about things and see things, you know, the idea of a, a populist or a dictator, you know, Kim Jong-un getting his own version of Alexa, you know, that's the nightmare that I, I'm thinking about. Ooh, man, Ryan just got me scared of things. I didn't even Black Mirror, you know? Wow, truly. Well, to that point, uh, do get some sleep. You had a long night last night, I'm sure, covering the election. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. All right, when we come back, friends, it's time for Fire Tweets. I'm just shook. <laughs> I'm going to use this brain to think about it. <laughs> Welcome back to Black Mirror. No, you're watching AM to DM. Um, we have a tweet here from Pigsmaven. We were asking you, what are things you all don't have time for? You know, um, and Pigsmaven, you said, I don't have time for menacing sewer clown balloons floating outside my office. And I don't know if we have a picture, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's totally the balloon from, I know technically the balloon from it was red, but this is like its cousin. There's something really creepy about a balloon at half mass, like when it like has yes. just enough helium to be like it's six feet. Eerie. Like, is it because it's like human height? Almost? I don't know. I don't know. It's just an inherently yeah. unsettling. Even not knowing about the movie and the book, you know. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, let's uh, get into these fire tweets and burn right. it down. Um, here's a tweet from Tommy Bayer. Uh, oh, you got to hit the button, girl. So, Ready? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Katie's also fighting her cold. <laughs> Excuse me. I love it. The invention of fishnet stockings. Fisherman number one, help, I got caught in the fishnet. Fisherman number two, is it me or is Dave looking a little hot? <laughs> Fisherman three, no, Dave is definitely being hot right now. Oh, that is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, what is, what's going on with these fishermen? I hate my fishnet. Chill out. Why? Why? It guys, makes sense. Guys, Why is it that we like that little thing? I don't know. And we're like, it does a little, you know? All right, facts, relatable. All right, this tweet comes from, I love this account, Astro Poets. Shout out to y'all. 911, what's your emergency? Scorpio, the ghost in my house wants to be monogamous. Yeah, <laughs> happy Scorpio season, everyone. I am so into astrology. Where are you on, how do you feel I'm, about this? I'm not very okay. into astrology. What's your sign? Aries. Okay, I don't but I don't really Aries. identify as that. Okay. Like all the things about an Aries are not things that are okay. like personality traits of okay. mine at all. I'll have to do some research on Aries later. Okay. 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 Um, all right. Derek? Tweeted, uh, technically, I'm still young, but according to my back pain, I'm actually 97. Oof. Um, it's getting real out here. Yeah. Grateful I don't. Well, you know, actually, it's like I've gotten to the point where I'm like, did I just sleep wrong? Like, yeah. where I never, oh, it's such an unsettling yeah. realization because yeah. it's the beginning. Oh, yeah, because you know it's never getting better. It's never going to It's only <laughs> downhill from yeah. here out. If you are over 18, your body is just. Just bad, bad hardware yeah. here. Bad hardware. Kids out there, take care of your back. Look, oh, it, it actually, it doesn't matter either way, kids. Um, this tweet comes from Battelle, and it is <laughs> so funny. All right. I passed out 
and not one nurse thought they should put my wig back on for me. It was laying right next to me when I woke up. This is medical malpractice. <laughs> First of all, girl, shout out to you for having a great sense of humor. I, I trust that you are okay now and doing well, but also, I would be so angry. <laughs> you know, it's why I don't trust the medical establishment. I'm anti-doctor. This is why you're coughing. This, this is, is why, why you're coughing this morning. Oh my gosh, look at this. A All cough right. conspiracy theorist. I get the tweet of the day. All right, let's go. Um, this comes from Alyssa. Me, during interviews. I love challenges. Me, day one. If I have to fill out a form for direct deposit, I don't want it. <laughs> Mood, I don't know what, why is it so hard to get paid? Why is there so much work we have to do on top of our work? to get the money for the work. I know. Well, we're done. I know. I don't like it. Trash. Trash. Well, coming up, I sit down with Tika Sumter to talk about her new movie, Nobody's Fool. But up next, we're going live from the district because that's comforting. No. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Paul, good morning. All right, coming straight. Hi, good morning. <laughs> I love this. Coming to us directly from straight Twitter. Wow, okay, go socks. I like your hat. Is this a like sports thing? Yeah, it's a sports team. It is a, the uh, 2018 World Series champion Red Sox. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm happy. How are you guys morning? I feel happy. great. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's true. This is the most chipper I've seen you in some time, Paul. All right. Well, <laughs> let's ruin that mood. You're not mood. the first person to tell me that. This is important. I love it. Well, let's ruin that mood and talk about politics. Uh, we are a week away from midterms, of course. And so we did want to check out this tweet from BuzzFeed News. Allegations of voter suppression have so far been raised in Georgia, Kansas, and North Dakota. Voting rights advocates are concerned about obstacles for people of color in particular to get to the polls. So, Paul, we've definitely been keeping our eye on what's going on in Georgia. But what are the specific allegations in all three of those states? So they're different in each state. In Georgia, it is, uh, they've got this really kind of out there rule where basically your voter information has to line up exactly with other records. And but I, I once many moons ago worked at a polling station and I can tell you that these like minor inconsistencies happen all the time. All it takes is one person inputting your name slightly differently and suddenly there's an inconsistency in your uh, home ownership record or your rent versus your voter ID. And like, who do you think that targets? Not a lot of John Smith are going to have this issue, right? So that's what's happening in Georgia. And then we've got other states where we've got a series of different uh, types of voting, like, you know, they're supposed to guard against fraud. But really what we see is that they restrict the people who can actually vote. North Dakota, you've got uh, tens of thousands of Native Americans who uh, tend to rely on P.O. boxes for their mail, for their address. And they've got a voting law there that says you have to have an address to be able to vote. I mean, that, it, it, that is pretty clearly targeting one specific group of people, a group of people who tend to vote Democrat. And then we've seen this in, in a series of other states. You'll see things like, you know, you have to have like two forms of ID. There's all kinds of ways that you can institute these little things, these, these barriers to entry that disproportionately affect uh, poor people, that disproportionately affect people of color. And we've seen basically an explosion of these types of laws over the last uh, decade or so. Mm. Is there a sort of commonality in the sort of obstacles that people are facing? 
Yeah, I mean, basically, it, what happened was Obama got elected. Obama got elected, and then, it, I mean, you can see it afterwards. A series of states uh, started, uh, you know, we started hearing about needing to protect against voter fraud, and a series of states started uh, instituting these types of laws uh, that, I mean, have a demonstrable effect of lowering voter turnout, uh, particularly for Democrats, and we see them in red states, and uh, it's helped Republicans win in the, over the last decades. Okay, and decade. How, decade. And how does this all tie back to the Supreme Court case, Shelby County, Shelby County versus Holder? So there used to be um, a system that prevented this type of thing, and that is because of the, the legacy of historical racism in certain southern states where they were just blatantly uh, trying to pass laws that were uh, targeting the black community. I mean, it was shameless. So. Uh, the federal government put in, in place uh, protections for this, basically saying that certain states who had a history of this type of discrimination, you can't just change your own laws on your own. This has to get federal approval anytime you want to do anything. And that was a, a system um, for many decades. And then a few years ago, the Supreme Court essentially ruled there's no evidence we need this anymore. I mean, this is this is uh, pretty far back in, in the past, and uh, we don't know if we need it, so we're just striking down these protections. The states have since then been free to kind of do what they want, and we've seen several of them take advantage of that. Mm. So here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. The Department of Homeland Security installed a plaque to commemorate what they say is the first completed section of Trump's border wall. Paul, is Trump's border wall actually under construction right now? No, this has been one of the funny things as being a congressional reporter is that how much the wall has really not reared up at all. I mean, they've gotten less than $2 billion over the last couple of years uh, for wall like maintenance, basically. I mean, that's not out of line with historical norms. I mean, it is. You have a certain amount of border funding that goes in anyway. Uh, there's just essentially been no real spike in, uh, in wall funding. So, you know, now with the midterm coming up, of course, this being one of the signature uh, promises of the Trump administration, and it just it just not getting done. Uh, they had to come up with something, so they put a plaque on an area that was you know already scheduled for maintenance for years, and so we're doing this game. <laughs> and okay, so it's it's like it's an obvious bid to like be like, see, we did something, and and Trump can take credit with it, you know, a week ahead of midterms. How unusual, though, I didn't want to ask as a congressional reporter, are these kinds of just ridiculous gestures, like just throw a plaque on it uh, right before. And oh my God. <laughs> I, yeah, like sadly common. Like I, 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 it depends, it depends obviously like issue by issue, but you'll see like certain things, yeah, they'll have like bills that you know will never pass that uh, purport to do something and then, you know, it'll do one like really great thing and then 14 terrible things and then, and then you know, it'll fail and then they'll accuse the other side of not supporting the one great thing. Like this type of gamesmanship happens a lot. However, I should note, if Trump really wanted the wall, well, if Republicans really wanted the wall, they could have had it or they could have had a version of it. They had many billions of dollars in funding that was uh, tied to a DACA bill that Democrats were prepared to vote for if Republicans could get on board it would have been, they needed to give a pathway to citizenship for a few thousand people that would have got them, oh God, I, I'm forgetting now, but it was like $20 billion for the wall. A huge amount of money. They could have plausibly said that they had transformed uh, the, the southern border and they didn't vote for it. So instead we've got, you know, this nonsense with a plaque. Is, is there any upcoming spending bills that are tied to this wall? Well, yeah, so basically every spending bill, this is going to rear its issue. Every every other one, Republicans have ultimately uh, uh, folded. I mean, they, like, you know, Democrats have, have uh, 
uh, stuck to a pretty hard line on refusing to give them more than like tiny regular amounts of, of, of funding, and the fights have come down to other things, and at the end of the day, Republicans have just not picked this fight. Now, the, the next uh, spending issue is going to come up in December. I mean, every time this happens, we think, wow, is this going to be the one? Is the wall a Republican is going to you know, stand tough and be like, we are not, we will shut down the government unless we get this wall funding. And it keeps not happening. It didn't happen in September. It didn't happen last April. And it keeps not happening. So yeah, in theory, we could be we could be having a big crisis about whether or not there's going to be money for a wall as as soon as the end of this year. But I don't think it's going to happen because they've had chances to do it, and they just they clearly don't want to pick this fight. Hmm. Well, speaking of a fight they have picked, I wanted to ask again about the caravan. Um, has Homeland Security, uh, you know, Secretary Christian Nielsen commented on it at all recently? Yeah, she has, and I actually think it's probably good to, to clear this up a little bit because her comments uh, sort of went viral over the weekend where, um, I'm sorry, I should have read them again so I could get the exact quote right now, but it was something along the lines of, uh, like, you know, we are not looking at shooting anyone who tries to cross the border yet, which uh, sounded extremely ominous, obviously. I mean, I, I think there's a couple things to note here. For one thing, like, again, the caravan is it's so far away. Like, this is, like, people... I think we should all take the temperature down here. This is a humanitarian issue that is happening, that is, it is not people about to pour over the border. But also, those comments, I would encourage people to watch the actual interview. Like, the reporter was sort of um, uh, pressing her on that point. Like, would you, like, shoot people who are trying to cross the border? And she's like, no, we are not considering doing that yet. So it, it, that was, I think, I think uh, Secretary Nelson didn't mean to be if I'm being charitable, didn't mean to be like sending out that kind of message or threat. I think it was just a, uh, a communication issue that once you rip it out of the context, looked kind of worse than it was. All right. Well, Paul, um, Julia Moser tweeted, uh, you wearing that Red Sox hat on a and DM is very rude, as she is a sad Dodgers fan. But I had to tell you, it's the first time in uh. weeks I've seen you smile. Uh, during this segment, so I'm gonna let you have it. I'm gonna let you have that. <laughs> the first time in weeks I felt alive, Said. Oh gosh. All right. Well, buddy, uh, thank you for Sorry joining. Sorry to Dodgers fans. You guys were a great team. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. All right, up next, I sit down with the star of Tyler Perry's new film, Nobody's Full, Tika Sumter. I'm so excited to talk with her. Stay tuned. Hello, my queens. This is The Sit Down, and I'm joined by actor Tika Sumter, the star of Tyler Ferry's new film, Nobody's Fool. Yes. Good morning, beautiful. Good morning, my Good love. Morning. I said during, I was like, your dress has like brightened my mood. It's oh, like the good. most beautiful. I love it. Thank you. Well, you can thank Probble. Okay, shout out to Probble <laughs> Gore. He's yes, great. He's yeah. great. Um, so let's get into the film. You play, of course, a career woman um, who's out here doing it, mm -hmm. and she gets involved with a lot of things. A yes. lot goes There's on. There's a lot of layers there. <laughs> but yes. she also gets caught up in like a catfishing scandal while she's trying to find love. Love, yeah. And not to be too nosy, was any of this relatable? Have you had any catfishing moments? Um, I don't think catfishing moments, okay. but I've had moments where people present themselves as mm -hmm. one thing, and mm -hmm. then you later on you find out, oh, they're not that. Okay. You know? <laughs> oh, it doesn't yeah. just happen with catfishing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. a human being standing in front of me is mm -hmm. lying. Is um, lying. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I've had that. Totally, yeah. totally. And something I thought w was interesting is, is names in the film. So, you know, kind of, and this is something I think certainly all people of color, certainly black people can deal with, you Absolutely. know. In the workplace, Danica Patrick, right? Like, not Danica Patrick, but, but she Danica. says it like Danica. Her name Patrick, is Danica, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Danica, but then we find out later in the film, it's Danica. Danica. 
which is deep. And like that is something that I was like, huh, relatable. I know that feeling and I know people who have felt that pressure as uh -huh. well. Have there uh, been moments in your career where you've had to navigate that kind of tension? Like how do I present myself? Oh my gosh, I think code switching and mm -hmm. assimilation is so very real. Mm -hmm. um, I know friends of mine who have changed their names literally so that they wouldn't be judged mm -hmm. on it. So that was like, I love the choice that um, we made with, uh, you know, Tiffany and I actually, that mm -hmm. kind of just happened. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. and it made sense. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people get it. They're like, so her name is Danica. I'm mm -hmm. like, yeah, but she's trying to fit in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think in my career, it's like, especially in the beginning, you're like trying to navigate and show people who you are, but mm -hmm. then you're like, but that's not what they're actually hiring. Right. You know, so right. like, I remember going to an audition mm -hmm. and you know, they wanted somebody with like super curly hair, but like that, like not, like that natural hair, but like oh. that, like bouncy, like, you know, and I was yeah. like. Natural, but not natural, but black, but not black. Yeah. Right, but this was before like inclus being inclusive was uh -huh. a thing, and uh -huh. it was like, I had braids, uh -huh. and so I went home and took them out, and it was crinkly, Okay. you know, uh -huh. and I was like, hi, I'm back. <laughs> and they were like, like ma'am, that's cute, but no. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't cute at all, yeah. but it was just like me trying to fit into the box mm -hmm. that they were trying to check mm -hmm. and not really being what they needed, mm -hmm. you know. So. And, th and that seems so challenging. I mean, you know, for us, for, you know, kids at school. Oh my God. Uh, fitting in at work is, is challenging. And then, you know, you're coming up in Hollywood. You've been doing great work for years mm -hmm. where literally, yeah, casting calls are very specific about uh -huh. the visuals. How did you thrive in this space and hold on to yourself? Man, that's a good question. You know, I grew up in New York mm -hmm. and I was born in Queens, raised in Long Island, Long Island. <laughs> and um, when I came to Manhattan, I kind of built this wall around myself. Mm -hmm. And also I didn't have uh, the internet kind of like okay, where- Okay, pushing it, pushing it. Yeah, yeah, so I didn't have that to fight against, mm -hmm. but you know, I didn't allow any negativity to, to to penetrate the wall because mm. if it did, I would break, mm. you know? So I had to protect myself. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of did that now, like mm -hmm. where it was like, if they're like, oh, we want this type of person, or I don't know if you're right for this. I'm like, that's cool. Cause I'm gonna be right for something else. And I'm gonna see you. Cause you're gonna see me. Hello. You know? Oh, I love that. Yeah. Like yeah. I was just comp, it was a naive thing. Mm. Also when you're younger mm -hmm. and you're like, of course I can be on this show. <laughs> of course they want crinkly hair, uh -huh. not curly, bouncy right. hair, yeah. you know? But like the confidence that I had in myself, which yeah. I also like went to class and I knew that I had something, mm -hmm. but nobody knows that they're gonna actually make it mm -hmm. to where we're sitting right here right now. Mm -hmm. But it was this kind of naive confidence. I love it. And love that's it. what has kept me thus far. I'm so happy it did. Me too. Um, and, you, and you mentioned about like just, you know, working with Tiffany and, and, and the wonderful, like, cause I thought, I was like, oh, that's such a great detail in the movie. And so knowing that that with the names came from you and Tiffany, just what was it like working with her? She is, somebody described her as a joy. Mm -hmm. She's really a joy to be around. Mm -hmm. And not just in the crazy, like, mm -hmm. Tiffany moments, but mm -hmm. like in the, she's really super, super smart. And she has really in-depth mm -hmm. conversations and she's loving mm -hmm. and she is, um, she doesn't want to just shine by herself. She okay. wants others to shine along with her. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, was, it was fantastic to work with Tiffany. That's so wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah. That's so wonderful. Yeah. I also wanted to ask about Omari Hardwick because, mm -hmm. you know, of course he's your love interest. In yes, this he movie. is. But also, shout out to Sparkle. Yes! <laughs> 
We were in we sparkle together. Actually, he was like in love with my sister. I love you like drama. Yeah, drama. <laughs> so uh, is it, so, is it uh, common that you get to work with same actors on different projects or, you know? Yeah, it's common. I mean, it's such a, as big as we think the industry is mm. online, it's not as mm. big as it seems. Mm -hmm. It's very small, so you constantly see the same people. Wow. Um, so when they said Omari would be my love interest, I was like, oh my God, I love him. Mm -hmm. It's either gonna be super awkward that like we feel like brother and sister, uh -huh. or it's gonna be like, there's chemistry. Thank <laughs> God there was chemistry. Good, good, like, and, and the right kind of And chemistry. the right kind, not the like. <laughs> like, oh, they got weird vibes. Yeah, this is awkward. No yeah, <laughs> no, it was a good chemistry, good. and I feel like it worked. I love it, I love it. And also because of Sparkle, you know, of course, Whitney Houston yes. was in that film, yes. and I, I, that has to be a change memory so I just wanted to ask if if you wanted to share anything about working oh on gosh. that film with her oh my gosh I I just don't I can't believe like how I got to work with Whitney Houston mm. I mean she is she's like another like icon mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. she was just so I remember her publicist saying like we were Upstairs, when it was a break, it was like a camera turnaround, mm -hmm. like so we had time, and mm -hmm. she was hanging out with us, mm -hmm. and like we were singing, and di well, I wasn't singing, but um, but <laughs> no, listening. Look, that's when you 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 know, one day you're like, oh my, I'm such a good singer, and then you're in like the room with Whitney Houston, you're like, I am not going to play myself. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and she's singing with us and like dancing and having fun, and her publicist said she does not, that is not normal for her to wow. like really, she enjoyed being there with wow. us. And she felt like a mama bear. Like she was very protective and loving. Mm -hmm. And so those are the memories that I keep of her. And she, I have two iconic moms, mm. Whitney Houston, Whoopi Goldberg. Wow, you're doing pretty good. I mean. That's a lot of black woman love. Right honey, <laughs> give it to me. Give me all the mothers. I love it. All of them. I love it, yeah. I love it. And then one last question where you go, I'm so excited, you're gonna be in Sonic the Hedgehog. I <laughs> am. <laughs> Is there anything you can tell us? Can you tell us who you're going to be? Well, um, James Marsden and I are a couple. Shook. <laughs> Shook. I've had a crush on James Marsden my entire I, life. Honey, get in line. Is he a vampire? He is not aged. He okay. looks the same. I can't. He's such a handsome guy. And Ew. no, top this, he's funny. Like uh, we like super funny, uh, like laughing all the time. I love it. And so we we go on this journey with like Sonic, and um, it's gonna be fun. Jim Carrey's in it. Uh, yeah. So it was just like. I'm so excited. Did you play Sonic vibes. as a kid? Or, did I play Sonic as a kid? <laughs> Who are you asking these questions? See, I would just watch the boys I had a crush on play Sonic. Oh my god! I'd be like, yeah, go, go. Yeah, go yeah, play. yeah. No, go I would play. like, yeah, I would like <laughs> knock on the door of my brother's room. I'm like, can I play? He's like, you can watch. I'm like, screaming. I'm like, what? And then when you leave, I just play okay. Sonic. And now he's gonna get to watch you, honey. <laughs> honey, Sonic's coming out. <laughs> yeah, so I I'm excited. It. I'm excited. So excited. Well, I am too. We could do this all day. All I mean, you are. So, I, I like this. This is a delight. I love it. Well, Tika, thank you. So much for gracing us. Ah. Thank you. Um, friends, Nobody's Fool is out November 2nd. And up next, we're going to be talking to Jenny Han about all of those really cool Lara Jean Halloween costumes we saw over the weekend. Did right. you see that? They're no. so cute. People dressing up like characters from the movie. Oh my God. So cute. So cute. And your Twitter feed was probably full of people's Halloween costumes. I know that mine was. Um, but one in particular took over the timeline. Uh, Jenny Han, author of To All the Boys I've Loved Before, tweeted, There are very limited options for Asian girls on Halloween. 
Like one year I went as Velma from Scooby-Doo, but people just asked me if I was a manga character. Not this Halloween. Largie. Um, so Jenny Han joins me now. Hi. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Um, so how did you find all of these Largie costumes? Well, they were tagging me in them and uh -huh. also tagging to all the boys I've loved before. So it was actually very easy. Ah, okay. Um, and I like I love these. These are so cute. People had sort of. It seemed like people. There were sort of two themes, like the 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 shirt tied and like some of the other outfits that she wears. There, there were many. Yeah, there are so many different looks in the movie. So they had a wide array uh -huh. to choose from. Um, so Lara Jean Croft to all the tombs I've raided <laughs> before. Um, that was one uh, version that someone did. Were there any other adaptations that stood out to you, like someone who took the Lara Jean and then made it into another kind of thing? The Tomb Raider was the only one that I saw, <laughs> which I thought was next level brilliant. It's, yeah, that's, it's pretty good. So what was the response to the thread that you tweeted? I mean, my response uh -huh. was I had like tears of joy <laughs> from it. You know, it was like such a dark weekend. Yeah. And I started seeing them pop up uh -huh. um, in my feed. Um, so I started sharing them just because it was bringing me a little bit of sunlight. It must, I imagine that to have written a character and then see it adapted and portrayed on screen is like an awesome thing. And then this is this next level thing of like fans actually, like real people out there in the world who were affected and touched by this character in this movie wanting to dress up as something that you created out of thin air. Like, how does that feel for you? I mean, for me, I think the joy of it was seeing their faces because I felt like I saw the smiles and they looked so proud and like joyful. Mm -hmm. And just as an Asian American woman, I think there's a sense of like belonging to something um, when I saw those photos, you yeah. know, where some, belonging to something, but also knowing that something belongs to you. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, I think that was what made me feel really emotional about it, was just to see that. Because the quote is actually from the book, and um, I talk, the character talks about um, Halloween and how it's like kind of hard to come up with a costume. Mm -hmm. And she says at the end of the um, paragraph, it's, she says something like, I wish that I would never have to hear, what are you again? Yeah. You know, and that's a question that is, meaningful on more than one level. Mm -hmm. How did seeing these costumes sort of make you think about the way that people have reacted to the movie and the book as a call for diversity and representation in films in Hollywood? I mean, I don't, I think that it just made me think, you know, this wasn't a character that was available to people to dress up as, you know, yeah. until she existed. And so to see so many women sort of take that on and like embrace that and, and really proudly wear it mm -hmm. um, was just very affirming. Yeah. What, what was the Velma costume like? So that was the character. <laughs> okay. That was, that, that was an excerpt from uh, the okay, book. Okay. So it wasn't me. My experience mm -hmm. was in college, I was dressing up as Britney Spears. <laughs> ah. The first year Britney came on the scene. Yeah. But I even had the pink palms in my hair and stuff, but people were just like, manga? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm Britney Spears. Um, that's, I mean, I feel like the ping pong pops, people should know. People should know. People should know. Uh, Jenny, thank you so much for joining me and sharing some joy on our timelines uh, this weekend. It was like a breath of fresh air to see something good, positive, people doing costumes that were not like a weird edgy bummer either. Um, so next up, uh, Tomi Obaro is talking to Kiese Lehman about his new book, Heavy.
Welcome back. I'm Tomi Obaro, culture editor here at BuzzFeed News, and I am here with Kiese Lehman, professor and author whose new memoir, Heavy, is a finalist for the Andrew Carnegie uh, Medal. Yep. Right? Thank you for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, so in your memoir, you address it directly to your mom. Yep. Can you talk a bit about why you decided to write it to her specifically? Yeah, so my mother had me when she was 19 years old. Um, we grew up together and experienced a lot of, you know, traumatic things the way most families do down south. Mm -hmm. And when I started to write this memoir, initially I wrote it to a generic reader, then I started to try to write it to my grandmother, and eventually mm -hmm. I realized the person that I was most afraid of writing to was my mom, so I thought I should probably try to do what I was most afraid of okay. doing. I see. Yeah. And your mom actually responded in an open letter. Oh, she responded, yeah, she responded to the book and open letter pretty much in some way apologizing, but also saying thank you. But she was involved in the process the whole time. You know, okay. I, didn't, I didn't just write the memoir. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was much more collaborative than I think it appears. Um, mm -hmm. And early on in the process, she was not feeling it. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually she, we had conversations we needed to have, mm -hmm. took some stuff out of the book she wanted me to take out, and okay. then she was a much, much happier. Okay, that, great. Great. And how did your grandmother feel about it too? Because she's another sensitive. Yeah, my grandmother is, you know, she's like 92 years old. And she, and one, she was just happy that the book got done. Mm -hmm. And she was really happy that I tried to talk about what she calls just like the spiritual interiority. Hmm. Um, she didn't want to read a book that was just like a tell-all if it wasn't talking about in some way like... Um, Again, what she would call godliness. I mean, there's not <laughs> there's not much Jesus in that book, and she she doesn't like that. But she likes that I'm sort of mm -hmm. tending to like spiritual interiority in the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so something that you talked about, like in the book, and that you just brought up now, um, is the idea of like telling the truth right. and doing the difficult thing. Right. Why was that so important to you in the process of writing? Oh, uh, it's so important to me for number one because I think the nation um, just lies to us and always teaches us how to lie, but also mm. my mother and I, uh, we just told outlandish lies to one another for mm. 18 years until I left the house and then we continued. And I didn't know if I, I didn't know if I could tell a book that was truthful, but I knew I could do like some honest reckoning mm -hmm. um, because she taught me how to read and write. And so I just wanted to attempt to get closer to what some people call the truth. And, I, and the only way I could really do that was by actually writing to her about lies that we told each other mm -hmm. and the consequence of those lies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so another thing that comes up in the book a lot and that you're very candid about is the abuse that you suffered both physically yeah. and sexually. Yeah. Um, and something that I noticed very early on in the book is that you say that it's, it was like you were in this world, but there wasn't like a language for what was going on. Right. Um, and so why do you think that that language didn't exist? That's a great question. Um, one, I think that the teachers weren't taught. I think they also weren't paid enough to teach themselves things that they needed to be taught. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did a lot of reading, but I just, you, uh, there was one week in my life where I saw two, my, two, I saw and heard two of my friends get sexually assaulted, mm. and then there was sexual violence happening in my house. And the, the thing I felt most was that I felt sad for my friends, but also felt when they were getting assaulted that something was wrong with me because the hmm. boys who assaulted them didn't pick me. Hmm. And I just didn't know how to talk about that and not feel like mountains of shame. Mm -hmm. And I tried to, I tried to write to my grandmother about it. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother just, she didn't know how to deal with it either because she also was trying to deal 
uh, without professional help yeah. about, you know, with her um, experiences with sexual violence and terror. So yeah. there was just, there wasn't a model, right? Um, and then I read The Color Purple and mm -hmm. I saw something that was closest to a model. Mm -hmm. And that actually helped me try to write this book. Okay. Yeah. Something else that you talk about um, is your relationship towards your own body yeah. um, and like an eating disorder right. that you that you had. And that's something that a lot of men, you don't really care about that that much mm -hmm. among men. And so was that something that you knew that you wanted to write about and address in the book specifically? And and why did you decide to include I it? I definitely wanted to do things I hadn't seen done much. Mm -hmm. And I just hadn't seen many black men, especially cis supposed straight men writing about their body with like some sort of intimate detail, mm -hmm. talking about anorexia, talking about gorging ourselves, talking about the euphoric feeling we all get, I think, sometimes from starving. Mm -hmm. And and so because I hadn't seen it modeled, I also just wanted to try it. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it's been something that's tormented me my life. You know, I, I gain 150 pounds, lose 150 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, but the time that I felt most free and most terrified of my life, I was the lightest. And so I just wanted to flip the idea of like lightness, hmm. meaning freedom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so let's talk more generally about okay. the state of, of black writing. Yeah. Um, and you like rep really hard for this off, I think generally. Yeah. Um, so talk a bit about the writers that you're excited about now. Out of the South? Yeah. Okay, uh, so uh, we were just talking about Zanjay Robinson. Um, is out of Memphis. She's working on a memoir right now. It's absolutely amazing. Um, I have a friend, Derek Carell, who's a poet. He just did this book called Strippers in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. um, he's coming out with a new book. Uh, not supposed to tell anybody the title of that book. Okay. Uh, Maurice Ruffin, okay. uh, coming out of New Orleans. Uh, we Cast the Shadows, amazing futuristic book that I'm looking forward to everybody reading. And of course, you know, I think the person who made a lot of it possible for us, two people who made it possible for us, uh, Tayari Jones and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Jasmine Ward yeah. are, are why I'm sitting here talking to you. Definitely. So we got some young folks, we got some middle-aged folks, and we got some senior folks who are young, who are, who are holding the South down. Okay. Yeah. Great, thank you so much, Kiesa, for coming. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, and up next, Saeed and Katie respond to your tweets. And Heavy is available everywhere now. Welcome back. Welcome back. Have a sweet tweet here. Sweet tweet from Jolie. Uh, you said, thank you for all the guests today that confirm black and Asian excellence and nuance is what I needed to jumpstart my week. I like that. It's so cool. I love that. Like, I could be busy living my life. Like, I don't always know, like, what's on the rundown for the whole show. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes I'm like, oh, wow, Jenny Han is here, just <laughs> like you guys. And yeah, so have Jenny Han and Casey Lehman and just all in one show. Thrilling. Antika, life. I love yeah. it. I love it. Yeah. Well, we asked you, uh, what is something you don't have time for right now? And Greg says all of this and uh, points at everything. Mood, Greg. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. For once, I agree with a guy named Greg. <laughs> Greg, I agree. That's true. Greg is not always a name that no. is trust for me, but all No right, Greg. Greg shaming here. <laughs> um, LSB1 says... Have no time for people that aren't part of the solution. Hashtag choose a side. LSB1 has had it. Mm -hmm. It's fed up. Fed up. Been there. Fed up. Yeah. Um, you all really enjoyed Saeed's sit down with Tika Sumter. Uh, Kirsten Baptiste says, Waymint, Tika Sumter is going to be in the Sonic the Hedgehog and James Marsden is her love interest. Let me just. Phew. Yes. Oh my God. Tika is just such a delight and so beautiful. I just love yeah. those interviews where it's like, do we know each other? Are we? <laughs> <laughs> so fun. But James Marsden as a love interest is. You deserve Tika. 
<laughs> I have such a crush on him. Do you have a James Marston stand? <coughs> I have a very staunch Sonic the Hedgehog oh, okay. uh, stance. Yeah. Uh, he was kind of hot too. Sonic and know. Tails do not kiss. They do not kiss. <laughs> Is that a thing? <laughs> That's the thing. There's lots oh. of cartoons that people believe they do. They do oh, not kiss. Okay. I'm going to do my research later. All right, Katie. <laughs> well, thank you to all of our guests. And also, Katie, thank you for co-hosting with me oh, today. It's not easy, you. especially when you're fighting a cold. <laughs> also, thank you to Julia Reinstein, Ryan Broderick, Paul McLeod, Tika Sumter, Jenny Hahn, and Casey Lehman. Thank you all. Um, Isaac uh, will be back tomorrow with Saeed. Um, I will be dead. And come back tomorrow here at 10 a.m. He's not going to be dead. <laughs> Probably. Oh, you're hanging. We don't know. Just take some more medicine. <laughs>